Hello scholars, this is the professor speaking and I welcome you to Hi, That's Scary, a podcast that utilizes cannabis to analyze horror cinema. The title of today's lecture is Whispers of Queerness Are Louder Than Scream, Part 3. Today we will be continuing our discussion on Scream. If you have not listened to Whispers of Queerness Are Louder Than Scream, Parts 1 and 2, please pause and do so before you continue. Last lecture, we finished on Stu's party starting to thin out for curfew, with Gail having hid a camera in the living room. Sid and Billy go to a bedroom that is apparently supposed to be Stu's parents' room, considering that's the one that he offered. The reason I say supposed is because I'm fairly certain that the bed in this room is a full, and the people are upper class less rich. Why wouldn't they have a queen? Anyway, the two start talking about things between them, and Billy apologizes before Sid cuts him off and says how she is the problem. Which is gross, and his previous behavior has manipulated her into this mindset. A mindset that convinces her to sleep with him, so makeout is in session. Downstairs, the partygoers are watching Halloween. Stu starts whining, asking when they'd see... Jamie Lee Curtis topless. More performative masculinity, and I say that because he, a teen boy, called them breasts. Not boobs, not tits, not even jugs, but breasts. Okay, sure. Randy explains that it doesn't happen in this movie because the character of Laurie Strode is meant to be virginal, and that's why she survives. When questioned, Randy pauses the film to break down the rules of horror movies, which are no drinking, no drugs, no sex, and no saying I'll be right back. Stu then goes to grab beers, saying the phrase to be a little shit. Outside in the van, Gail and Kenny are only just starting to hear Randy's lesson when Dewey comes knocking. He received a call about an abandoned car and asks Gail if she wanted to go with him to check it out. Dewey, I understand that you got a crush, but why in the fuck, like, bring a civilian to investigate evidence slash a potential crime scene? Fired. Fired. Dewey should be fired. Why? Why would you do this? It doesn't make sense. I can't make it make sense because it's fucking stupid. Dewey wants to walk there too, which, bro, that's fucking dumb. I get you want to flirt with her, but... There's a whole murderer on the loose. What the fuck? While they walk off, more kids are leaving the house. We go between Sid and Billy having sex upstairs, which Sid doesn't look crazy into, and the remainder of the party downstairs. The phone rings and a very drunk Randy answers it to find out about their principal being murdered and hung up on the football field. The party quickly empties so that they can go see the body before it's taken down. Kenny sees the kids piling into cars and closes the van door. While walking, Dewey and Gail chat. They get ran off the road by the drunk high schoolers speeding off to see their dead principal. Having had to jump into the bushes to keep from getting hit, Gail kisses Dewey. Despite already doing shitty police work, Dewey ends the kiss because he's on duty. 
as in, he believes it would be unprofessional for him to make out with a reporter while working. I'll take it. They discover the car that had been reported. It's Neil Prescott's. They proceed to run back to the house. Inside, Sid and Billy are getting dressed post-coitus. Sid ends up asking Billy who his phone call was to when he was in jail. He said his dad, and Sid immediately says that she saw the sheriff call him. Sid's still suspicious of him. Which easily explains her lack of enthusiasm when having sex. Fractured emotional relationship making her not excited sexually. Hmm, wonder what that sounds like. Billy knows that she still doesn't trust him and kinda gets into her face about it. Like, not very close, but you still get that feeling. Up from behind comes Ghostface. Billy is quote-unquote stabbed a bunch of times and Sid dips. A chase happens, Sid eventually reaching a room and blocking the door with a surfboard. Smart. She gets to the window and starts to bang on it, yelling for help. Why? Ghostface starts breaking down the door and Sid manages to get the window open. She crawls out, holding onto the frame as she starts screaming for help. Homegirl, you in the middle of nowhere. It seems like your entire town is in the middle of nowhere. Ain't none of y'all got neighbors. Ghostface grabs her arm, and in the struggle, Sid falls. She lands on a boat, and then plops to the ground, which, ow, she's somehow not dead, but nah, that's gonna do some spinal damage, fam, like, I don't know how she's standing after this. She sees Tatum, takes a few seconds to process her friend being dead, and runs away, limping, but still running. Inside the house, Randy's drunk as fuck on the couch, trying to direct Jamie Lee Curtis on the TV, informing her of the danger behind her. At this same moment, Ghostface is coming up behind him, ready to strike when he hears Sid screaming for help outside. Sid makes it to the news van, and Kenny lets her in, closing the door. They see the scene we just witnessed on the little monitor. Kenny jumps out of the van, to go help Randy when he remembers the delay. Ghostface slices his throat. In his last act before dying, Kenny points to a little door that Sid could escape through. This saves her fucking life. She's able to get out of the van and run away. Dewey and Gale get back to the front of the house. Dewey orders Gale to go to the van and call the sheriff while he goes inside. He looks around and Randy is no longer watching the movie. He continues to scope out the place. Gail yells for Kenny when she reaches the van and finds him gone. Discovering a large quantity of blood on the ground, she jumps inside, grabs the cell phone, which is a brick. I love seeing that clunky ass, huge ass phone. She calls 911 and as the operator picks up, Randy scares her by popping in the window. So she punches him multiple times with the phone. Gail then turns on the van and sees the windshield covered in a mysterious red liquid. Is it blood? Yes, it's blood. Kenny's body slides down when she reverses and 
While Gail is upset, she yells at the body to get off because she can't see. She manages to swing it off in time for Sid to run out the bushes and make Gail fly off the road to avoid hitting her. Gail crashes the van. Sid runs back to the front of the house, screaming for Dewey. He comes out onto the porch, and he has a knife at his back. Which Ghostface rips out of him, ow, when he goes to charge Sydney. She makes it to Dewey's car and locks herself in. Dewey is a good police officer in this moment and didn't leave his keys in the ignition. Unfortunately, that means Ghostface was able to get them. He fucks around with Sid for a bit before slowly creeping in through the trunk. The police radio buzzes and Sid, thinking quick, grabs it and asks for help, giving the address, says that it's Stu's house, and quote, he's trying to kill me. Which gives an implication that Stu is trying to kill her. Which he is, but she don't know that yet. He attacks her, obviously salty at Sid's police chat, and she rolls out of the vehicle to get away. She runs in his surprised to not see Ghostface when she turns back. Still being smart, Sid goes to grab Dewey's gun. Randy comes limping up to her, saying they need to go. Sid holds him up because she doesn't know if he's Ghostface or not. Stu runs up at this time, and the two begin shouting that the other killed Tatum. Sid makes the best horror movie decision ever and says fuck you both that's right trust nobody Sid she locks herself inside the house Billy tumbles down the stairs still alive just really bloody Sid helps him stand and he takes the gun from her he lets Randy in who begins to accuse Stu of going mad Billy switch flips quotes Psycho and shoots Randy that's right, last 20 minutes of the movie, we get the reveal of the killers. The blood covering Billy is actually corn syrup. Sid tries to flee only to run into Stu, who has the voice modulator to sound like Ghostface. She goes into the kitchen, where the two corner her. Stu hands Billy the knife in a way that is just very theatrical. He, uh... Billy taunts Sid about how he got her to sleep with him. They want to play one last game, and either way, it ends with her dead. This is where we get that shot, that gay-ass shot with Stu against Billy's back with his chin nearly resting on Billy's shoulder. It's very intimate. Stu likes coming up behind men and putting his weight against their backs, and I don't know about the rest of you, but that seems a little lot very extremely not straight to me. Sid says they won't get away with it, but Billy points out Cotton. They already have. Sid wants a motive. Billy says that they didn't actually need one while then going into some whiny rant about Sid's mom fucking his dad, and that's why his mom abandoned him, blah blah blah. Which, like, yes, he is an unhinged child, but, like, bro, what the fuck does Sid or your friends have to do with all that? And Maureen didn't make Mrs. Loomis leave. She chose to abandon her kid. Shit, even Stu looks a little surprised. Like, maybe Billy had never gotten into the details like that. I legit paused to look at Matt Lillard's face, and there's a hint of, uh, 
you didn't mention that part type deal or he really was not expecting Billy to mention it if he did know. Billy then uses his mommy issues as an excuse and then as a way to taunt Sid about fucking her some more. Stu points out that Sid broke the rules of horror movies by having sex, so she has to die. He then exclaims about a surprise, puts down the gun, and leaves the room. Billy points out to Sid that it's officially the anniversary of her mother's murder as Stu brings in her bound father. They explain how they're framing everything on him. Then, because they are still teenage boys and don't have fully formed brains, thus don't think things all the way through, they decide to start stabbing each other to look like victims rather than the killers before everyone is for sure dead. Not trying to give pointers on how to get away with murder, but inflicting injuries on yourself to feign innocence before everyone's dead is a surefire way to fuck your whole shit up. Billy starts to get a little frantic when stabbing Stu, Sid yelling that they've seen too many movies. Billy tells her not to blame the movies because they just give already unhinged people new ideas rather than putting the thoughts there in the first place. The same argument that has been happening with violence in video games was and still is happening with horror movies, but this has been an argument that's been happening with any piece of media over forever. I'm not even kidding. People thought that allowing just anyone to learn how to read could corrupt people and lead to anarchy. It was a way to control free thinking and education. I am a firm believer in the importance of horror cinema to society as a whole, as well as its impact on media. Case in point, minor side thing, nope, sorry. The other day on Twitter, Final Destination was trending because someone's vehicle got hit by some logs that flew off of a truck. A log truck. In Final Destination 2, a log truck losing control leads to some gnarly deaths. And that has left a lasting impact on a whole generation plus of people who watched it or was ever driven by someone that watched it. People who have seen that movie, even knowing it's probably irrational, will not stay behind or around log trucks. It's just not worth the risk. That movie came out in 2003. It's been almost 20 years, and people still don't fuck with log trucks. This is important. This impact, this effect it has on the real world and our experiences is utterly magical, and to disregard it because it came from horror cinema is some elitist, classist, and Eurocentric bullshit. So, Billy is right. Don't blame the movies. The movies are a reflection of what is, what could be, and what should or shouldn't be. In Final Destination 2, it's shouldn't be driving behind log trucks. Billy Loomis and Stu Mocker are the what-could-be that Scream is trying to deliver. But these movies didn't create these things that terrify us out of thin air. They just told the amalgamated story of several what's that already exist. And now a word from our sponsor. 
they just make it more creative. Stu says he can't handle any more stabs, and he's ordered to grab the gun with his face being caressed with the knife by Billy. Yeah, sure, very heterosexual. Mm -hmm, these are definitely not murder boyfriends. No, not at all. When Stu turns to get the gun, it's not there. Poof, gone. He says it's gone, and when Billy comes over asking where it is, Gail points it in his face. She gives him an alternate ending to their home movie where she wakes up and discovers their plan. Unfortunately, she didn't take off the safety, and Billy knows that. Safety on means no fire. Billy is able to knock her out again. In this time, Sid manages to slip away with her father, and the boys don't notice. Stu discovers her gone right as Billy is about to kill Gail. The phone rings and Billy answers. It's Sid, who says that she's called the police and reported them. He yells at Stu to go find her, but he can't because of the many stabbings. Billy then gives Stu the phone to talk to Sydney. She asks what Stu's motive, and this part is often played for laughs, like he was joking, but I don't think he was. He says that it was peer pressure and that he was far too sensitive before being cut off by Billy. But it's true. All of this was Billy's idea, and since it seems like Stu is in love with him, it wouldn't take much for Billy to manipulate an already not sound-minded kid. Billy grabs the phone from him to scream at Sid, and she challenges him to find her. He throws the phone, hits Stu with it, rude, and starts smashing things up while he goes to look. Stu gets back on with Sid and asks if she really called the cops. When she confirms, he starts to cry, saying that his parents will be mad at him. He's a child. This is also something played for laughs, but no. This is a manipulated and unhinged child. It feels like people forget that sometimes because of the aged actors and the gruesome crimes, but Stu is 17. And he's dying. And he's still scared of his parents getting mad at the fact that he literally murdered people. Billy keeps angrily looking around, stopping in a closet to check inside. He gets distracted by the movie, still playing on the TV, and Sid, donning the ghost face costume, stabs Billy twice with an umbrella. Which, by the way, missed the pad on Skeet, so the reaction he has is real. That shit hurted. Sid takes off the mask and stands over Billy for a moment when Stu comes barreling out of the kitchen, renewed energy now that Billy is incapacitated. Interesting. He tackles her which she gets away from. He tackles her again, over the couch, and while on top of her says, I always had a thing for you, which once again, more performative matcha bullshit. Sid gets away again, and is able to drop the TV on Stu's face, killing him. She walks over to where Billy is, and while looking at the ghost face mask, Randy, who isn't dead, startles her. He mentions his virginity in relation to the rules, and then Billy punches him in the face. He gets on top of Sid and starts to strangle her, a very intimate form of murder, as I've mentioned before in previous lectures. Sid digs her finger in his shoulder wound, which hurts, and he raises up to stab her. 
Gail miraculously having gained consciousness again because she's that much of a boss ass bitch shoots Billy the three remaining awake people gather around Billy's body and Randy warns about the horror movie trope of the last scare which Billy does and Sid promptly puts a bullet in his head no hesitation just blow. this scholars is why you always double tap. Neil Prescott falls out of the closet and... You know what, come on now. This movie is just ridiculously gay when you break it down like this. Maybe... Maybe it's the bud. Maybe it's because I'm too gay to function. But I just think that my three times and it's gay rule has been broken several times throughout this movie. That's all I'm saying. After Sid and Randy go to help untie Neil, we cut to outside where Dewey, who is not dead, is being loaded into an ambulance. We finish this tale with Gail delivering a news report, still bloody and bruised, describing the horror she just lived through. It's time for some conclusion, scholars, and here's mine. Every one of the main characters is in some way LGBTQ. I'm going to lay out character by character my humble onion on their potential labels. It is as follows. Billy, bisexual. Stu, gay. Sid, demisexual. Randy, bisexual. Tatum, queer. Dewey, transgender. Gail, aromantic. I went in depth to how I come to the conclusions that I do for the top four, but just for the sake of clarity. Billy's bisexuality is based on the fact that he and Sid were dating and on the way to fucking pre-Moida, so I don't find his interactions on screen with women to be performative, but also, like, all of his interactions with Stu and Randy do not read as heterosexual. It just don't. Stu's homosexuality is largely based on the performative actions with women, a clear contrast with Billy. Remember how I had gone into such depths about the brutality of the opening scene with Casey? If Casey's dumped Stu, this is a challenge. It's why they kill her in the first place. It was so gruesome, he was very upset. Maybe because her dumping him causes him to feel as though he needs to prove his masculinity and heterosexuality. He's also, like, totally in love with Billy peer pressure, remember? How easy would it be to peer pressure a kid that's in love with you to kill with you? It's actually kind of easy and very sad that people do that because it's fucking shitty. But anyway, Stu's gay. Sid's demisexuality comes out in her fractured emotional relationship with her boyfriend coupled with possible trauma-based asexuality with everything that happened with Maureen. Randy's bisexuality comes from the stew parallel. Remember, neurodivergent people are more likely to be queer. Queers are like wolves. We travel in packs. Let's break down the rest of the pack. I'm going to start with Gail. Her actions with Dewey all feel like she has a sexual attraction to him, but not necessarily a romantic one. A lot of her flirting, especially the awkward parts, is originally to try to get information, but does develop into something with more legitimacy. Also, as someone who's seen the next movies, her and Dewey never feel romantic. 
there is sexual attraction and they care very deeply for each other. Dewey is in love with Gale. But I don't buy that Gale is in love with Dewey. Just that she loves him. And there's a difference between the two. With that, we're going to slide into, not like that, Dewey. So, I'm not just pulling trans Dewey out of my ass. The basis I have for this is the mentions of his young appearance, his voice cracking, and his thin-ass mustache. All signs pointing to someone on testosterone, maybe still in a stage of second puberty. Add on that at the end, when he's wheeled into the ambulance, the blanket shows the top of his pecs, but covers the nips and below, you know, where top surgery scars would be. Dewey and Tatum are tied together, which I will explain in a moment. Tatum, I feel we don't get as much of her to be able to unpack this part of her properly, but I see her as queer. Her interactions with Sid mostly feel like her just being a very good friend, but some of her body language and protectiveness of her comes across as like a possible crush. Now the tie to Dewey, they're siblings, right? Well, there have been some studies done, mostly with same-gender siblings, where if there's one that's LGBTQ, there's probably another. It's more likely. Add on the wolf pack, and that's my third thing. This movie is practically dripping with queer energy, some of which I'm absolutely positive I missed. I highly recommend looking up Queer Theory and Scream. People have done video essays as well as paper ones. A thing that I very much want to point out is this wasn't all Kevin, y'all. Yes, known gay Kevin Williamson wrote the script, so queerness is inherently woven in, consciously or unconsciously, but he didn't do everything here. I actually went and checked the script for things. The whole stew crowding Randy and Randy being real alright for it for mad long wasn't in there. The stew, billy, chin, shoulder, touchy, what the fuck wasn't in there. The closet thing wasn't in there, and if that was the only thing I had to go off of, I'd fully admit that my arm hurts from the reach, but no, no, this movie's just gay. It just is. It's not gay only because of Kevin, but because of Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich and Jamie Kennedy's acting choices, because of Wes fucking Craven's directing choices, this perfect storm managed to come together to form not only one of the best meta-narrative pieces of media we have the privilege to consume, but to also form this complex creation of suburban queerness and toxic masculinity. Yes, there is the criticism of homophobia due to the killers being the ones most overtly queer, but isn't that kind of the point? Remember, Scream is about horror movie tropes. A common film trope, this isn't just a horror thing, is the queer-coded villain. Due to the Hays Code, way back in the day, queer people were not allowed to be shown on screen positively. As in, they had to be the villains, 
die or be otherwise unhappy or miraculously be straight by the end. These practices carried on past the haze code being lifted. We are still dealing with the ripple effect of it. It's honestly how we ended up with queer baiting because media wouldn't allow queer people in for so long when it started becoming popular instead of being seen as basic human decency, I might add, to show us on screen. Creators, studios, networks realized that they could hint at the possibility of representation without the intent to follow through. The Hayes Code fucked a lot of queer media. It is intrinsically linked with queer history as well as queer theory. Is it any surprise that Scream is impacted as well? That's all I have for you today, scholars. Tune in Tuesday the 8th for our lecture on Monster House, the 2006 animated children's horror movie. Until then, stay scary. <laughs>